Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode, episode 17, as it were, of the End of Sport podcast. Today, it is our very, very great pleasure uh, to welcome Shireen Ahmed to the show. Um, so we're not going to spend a lot of time with preamble because we want to get straight to that terrific interview. Um, but just, just a couple notes I want to start you with. Uh, the first is that um, we've at this point had a few episodes kind of covering issues and themes related to the ongoing uprisings and rebellion across the United States um, and with tentacles all around the world. And so if you are interested in catching up, um, we have one episode with NFL star Michael Bennett, an author of Things That Make White People Uncomfortable. That was a terrific interview that Derek did. We also had uh, an amazing conversation in our last show with Emil Javeri, who um, we spoke with just sort of like solidarity statements and all the kind of um, you know, sporting issues pertaining to the rebellion. Uh, and earlier, we, we had a conversation with the great historian Lou Moore about um, mostly um, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, but we uh, spent a fair amount of time also talking about political issues as they were first unfolding uh, at that time. Yeah. But that was sort of a preliminary conversation. The other thing we want to say is we got some exciting stuff coming up uh, next week. Big things. Big things. So we have a huge announcement in the back end of the week. Uh, so you definitely want to look out for that. And in the front end of the week, we have uh, another super exciting guest who we've been dying to talk to. So you definitely want to check that one out as well. Yeah. And as always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share, subscribe, all of those things. Reach out to us on Twitter at End of Sport Pod or the same handle on Instagram. And as always, if you're interested in in getting in contact with us, you can always reach out to us at the end of sport at gmail.com. Shereen Ahmed is a sports activist, freelance writer, and co-host of the absolutely essential Burn It All Down podcast. Her work has appeared in venues such as The Guardian, The Nation, The Globe and Mail, Time, Vice, SB Nation, BuzzFeed, and the list goes on endlessly. And recently delivered a superb TED Talk in February of this year, which we will certainly link in the show notes. Shereen, we are absolutely delighted and frankly honored to welcome you to the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. First thing we got to ask you, and this question keeps morphing, but really the question is just now, how is 2020 treating you in Mississauga, Ontario? Um, 2020 has been uh, both uh, a blessing. Um, I'm going to start with the gratitude piece and acknowledge my privilege. I'm going to acknowledge that I come from from privilege, like education privilege and financial privilege. And then to say that I'm able to stay home, I don't have to be frontline, that my children are safe, we have access to healthcare, like these things all, like they're all in my, and they weigh heavily on my process. Um, it's been a bit of a wonder, I guess. I'm going to actually use that word and say that there's so many things that have happened that I hadn't expect to happen. Um, the conversations, and I guess starting a little bit before 2020, and I'll say specifically in hockey, and maybe Don Cherry getting fired in the latter part of the year might have been mm -hmm. this really interesting foreshadow to what was to come. Um, uh, on a 
professional level, like everything that I was planning to do professionally with Burn It All Down and my own projects were all canceled abruptly because of COVID-19. And that was a bit of a bummer. But like I said, I've become very good at table tennis because I decided to purchase a table tennis <laughs> table with my children. I, <laughs> I have four children and that's um, that's been incredible. So I will remain positive, but also cautiously optimistic, I think. Appreciate that. And uh, that table tennis thing sounds fantastic. Um, <laughs> I was full Highly of recommend it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, listen, we've been desperate to have you on the show uh, and actually originally intended for this interview to take place uh, just for our listeners' um, own sort of understanding a few weeks earlier. Um, so really, there's a ton that we want to get to. So people understand there's a ton we want to get to that isn't fundamentally topical because we really are, were fascinated to get into your career and the ways in which um, you have really approach the kind of whole sports media complex that are radically different than what we typically see. Uh, and so that's meant to be kind of the larger substance of this conversation. But um, at the same time, we are experiencing a complex of rather important events. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think we would be both remiss and frankly, wasting an opportunity if we did not begin with a discussion to some extent of the rebellions sweeping the United States and demanding mm -hmm. systematic change from a fundamentally white supremacist society. Could you begin by giving a sense of your main takeaways from how the sports world has uh, excuse me, intersected uh, with the uprisings? Um, and what I'm sort of thinking about there is kind of what has maybe stood out to you in terms of both what has happened and potentially maybe what has not? Yeah, that's a, a fantastic way to start the conversation. I think... Uh, before anything, you take a look at what you know and what you have known to be truths and having access to have had access to work with incredible athletes and learn from academics and writers and sports activists way before me. I've stood on the shoulders of a lot of incredible people and watched and witnessed as black queer women took the forefront of you know liberation and, and resistance movements, particularly like Black Lives Matter. And I think that this whole idea that sports aren't political, all of us that inherently believe they are, are kind of like, we told you. And I think that there's something to be said about that. Like, we know, we know this is about justice. We know this isn't simplistic. This is a result of this capitalist system that forces people to think a certain way and has been distracting them from larger issues. And, you know, I think very much a takeaway for me is reminding people very gently, this isn't about Colin Kaepernick. This isn't about him. It was never about him. It was about him recognizing and calling out anti-blackness and police brutality. That's what it was. It was not about disrespecting a flag. It was never like that. And Colin Kaepernick was definitely not the first person to protest using sports as a platform. Like we go all the way back to Jesse Owens, like in my research, and I specifically work on Muslim women in sports. And in my research, like in one of the first resistors that I knew as a Muslim woman in sport was a Turkish fencer named Halet Kambet, who was at the 36 Olympics in Berlin. And she was essentially asked to leave because she was, she was in the stadium when Jesse Owens won. And then she was asked to be in, someone asked her to meet Adolf Hitler and she refused. And she says, I don't agree with his politics. And she was promptly asked to leave the country. So these are pieces of history that we don't always know about. But for those that do know about it, we know this isn't, this didn't start in 2016. 
there have been, this didn't start in 68. This has been ongoing. Like if you look at the histories of Black women like Wami Atias, Dr. Amira Rose Davis, my beloved co-host, has taught me so much. And how even the history that we know, there's been a purposeful exclusion of Black women from that, of Indigenous women who are on the front lines. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that's something that I still hold with me. So as I take all of this in and I see sports media fumbling and stumbling... <laughs> to try to make sense of, and I use those words very intentionally, um, <laughs> to try to make sense. And just a couple years ago, a couple of days ago, I retweeted something that I wrote um, for Paced Soccer, which that vertical no longer exists, but just talking about how from the ringer, somebody had written, I believe it might've been Bill Simmons, but who had written that, um, you know, sports has become this, sports writing had become this political junket like it was sort of becoming i'm like for you who never had to think of your sports as political it's a mm -hmm. new thing for us and for racialized for bipoc it absolutely always was political so this is this ain't new so is it fair to say that you have like some specific thoughts on the role of non-black people of color in sort of a moment like this and also like I guess like a corollary of that question is like, what is the role of people like Bill Simmons um, mm -hmm. should like to engage in this um, topic while also like realizing their own privilege? Um, I think, well, that's a fantastic question. And there's something that I really, really want to, um, you know, talk about and, my job as a non-black person of color and a woman of color, I still have straight privilege because I'm 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 not queer. I don't identify from that community. So I check my privileges and I also note that the communities in which I come from, although I'm a woman of color, there's still inherent anti-blackness. I'm from a South Asian community, from a Muslim community, and writ large there are so many women speaking out in Black Muslim communities. I've attended so many Zoom calls and, and sessions, but also respected that there needs to be Black-only spaces as well. Um, mm -hmm. That my job in this is to amplify the voices of Black women. Um, and there's just something I wanted to throw out there, and I say this practically in every single presentation or interview or, you know, discussion, is that people are like, you know, Black women have been voiceless. And I take a huge objection to that because well, voiceless is commonly this adjective that white saviors or white academics would, yeah. orientalists would use about women in the global South predominantly used as sort of like a trope in the Middle East, that they're voiceless. I've never believed that women are voiceless. Um, and to quote Arundhati Roy, who's an Indian feminist writer academic, and I'll say this quote, there's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard, end quote. And when I heard that, it I stopped in my tracks because that's exactly what it is. And if this moment is about us just amplifying black women, if this moment is just talking about how black trans lives matter, if this moment is just about not co-opting, not putting our own selves and centering this, that's our job. And that's my job. And my chosen family that are that identify as black and are from that community are exhausted. They are so yeah. tired. And if they can lean on me and they don't need to. It's more of an honor for me to be able to do this. But if they can lean on me, because friend of mine, Kayla, um, 
Gray from, you know, she's a sports writer in Toronto. The work that she's doing, the work that Morgan Campbell is doing, the way that Perdita Felicien has been talking publicly, these are people yeah. that count as my friends. And, you know, it's it's hard to see. It's heartbreaking to see the toil that they're doing in addition to doing their jobs day to day. They're navigating through this. They're hurting. Their communities are devastated. They're experiencing re-traumatization. So my job is to sit back and not inject myself and to advise other people. One of the things I kept doing was I just kept advising people not to reshare photos of black death and grief. Like, do yeah. not share videos. Like, I just one day, not I'm not trying to give myself props here, but to share with people why that was so dangerous. And you know, I had a friend and I asked with her permission, could I reshare what she shared on her Instagram and Twitter? And she said, yes, just to use as a talking point that don't do this. This is literally showing someone dying. And this is horrific for that community to witness again and again. Don't do it. And a friend of mine, I just gently nudged. It was a gentle nudge to say, listen, please don't do this. Give this some consideration. And she said, I'm so I'm feeling so terrible that that never occurred to me. And I, I think it's a reminder to not only just amplify black voices, but keep them centered in your discussions, center those voices. If you're not hearing them regularly, it means that you need to branch out and start first of all, because mm. it's becoming very apparent just to jump back to your sports question who actually interacts with black community at all. Cause like the amount of tone deafness is like wild to me <laughs> and, you know, just to keep those things in mind and for non-black people of color, it's a really good time to do the work, to have the difficult conversations and not to pretend like we, you know, we have, we're Muslim. So we're all together in this at the same time, you know, we don't, that's not okay and to check yourself and to have those conversations. And a lot of what I'm seeing and I've been reading online as well, are those instructions to really do the work, not performatively, but in your own structures and homes, in your family structures. That's really important. We have to unlearn, we have to help people unlearn whether they're older or younger, it doesn't matter. That's on us. Okay, well, on, on that, really incredibly instructional note because um, i think that's that's really the point here what people need to take away for themselves and sit with um i want to shift to talking about the work that you have been doing for um if i have it correct i want you to correct me on anything i have wrong here but if i if i have it right i can't believe this but it seems that you have only been a sports journalist for eight years is that right yes <laughs> full that, time that, yeah that sounds astound that's astounding to me it, it, that that felt like it couldn't be right um so in that time, you've established yourself as a leading voice um, in Canada and in the United States on all these topics we've been discussing already. Can you walk us through how you got into this work and why? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, the way you make it, I feel like I've been doing this forever. Um, but I, yeah, when I think of that, I came into sports writing formally. I had started a blog in 2012. and. Um, sorry, before that, probably 2011, I started a blog and I was doing, I was working frontline in a settlement service agency. And I'd, I'd always written, I feel like I'm a scribe at heart. And that's something that has always connected with me, whether it was like, 
you know, doing radical letter writing to editors in the varsity at U of T. Like I was always writing something and like fighting with like right wingers or Zionists. So <laughs> I was, that's very much a part of where it came from. Um, I got married very young and I had four children quite young. So was mothering and coaching and taking kids to sports all the time. Their father, my ex-husband's basketball player. So it was a lot of sports and there was a lot of stuff happening. So I was fully engulfed in that and quite happy. But I always sort of had my foot in a place, whether it was volunteering or at some grassroots. Like For me, it's a grassroots or bust, really. If you're not connected to that level for me, it's just, it. you know what I mean? Like for me, for my, my soul gets filled with grassroots work. And what ended up happening was um, when I left my job as a settlement counselor, um, I was really tired and I was burned out. And because, um, you know, doing that work with uh, survivors of interpersonal or domestic violence and then, but using sport as a way to connect young women in different communities, I was still blogging and my eye was very much on the hijab ban at FIFA because that is something that had personally affected my life. I was a lifelong soccer player. I still am. Although after COVID-19 isolation's over, it's going to take me six months to get ready to get back on the pitch because I'm so out of shape right yeah. now. Like I'm making so much muffins and becoming a muffin. Like it's, <laughs> it's just like, but um, so that had always been a part of my life. And I always firmly believed, I'm one of those idealists that believe that sport is a connector of people. It creates opportunity for conversations that are difficult to have in other circumstances. Like some people feel that about music. Some people feel like that about science. Some people feel like that about art. I really inherently believe this for sports. It's a way for us to connect. And I, and I'll just clarify, I did not say unify because I don't like the word unity right now. We'll talk about that later. Um, yeah. It's a way to connect people and open up possibilities for conversation and exchange. And I'll notice I did not use the word dialogue. I also hate that word at the moment. So um, I think that, uh, so it went from there and I started following and it took me a very long time. And my professional mentor is Dave Zirin. And I found Dave's work um, and thought, what, oh my goodness, he's writing about political, politicization of sport and sport being political and the politic of sport and who is he and oh my goodness somebody thinks like me or uh, this and of course like his writing is exquisite and I was just like oh my goodness so I started to follow him in social media and found spaces of people who think similarly and you know how did I get into it I think it was being really bold one day I, he was, he had a podcast with Etan Thomas, who later, you know, I got to know luckily and be on a panel with at an event. And they were talking about women's sports and I actually tweeted at Dave. And I said, you know, someday it would be really nice for you to actually have a woman on your show to talk about women's sports. And I guess he would have called that call out back then. I don't know what you would have called it. I don't, I just was like, so he responded to me and he said, would you like to come on my show? And I screamed and <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. And I just coincidentally, and this is so interesting. I was visiting Nova Scotia when that happened. My best friend's father was very, very sick and I wanted to go visit him. And I was in my best friend's house in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. And 
Dave Zirin followed me and I was like practically screaming. And she's like, what is Twitter? Who is Dave Zirin? Why are we so <laughs> excited? Like she's so not in this world of, of like social media and this kind of thing. She just had no idea. So I was very excited. And the next, while I was there, I found out that FIFA had actually struck down the hijab ban. And so I wrote a piece for my blog and this fellow who is now, I think he's at the Players Tribune, he was an editor at the Huffington Post, Seamus McKiernan, found my blog on Tumblr and he contacted me and he said, can can we repost this? Um, and I said, yes, and it went viral. And Dave saw it and said, we will be talking about this. Like, I did not know. And so that gave me a little bit more confidence and then a couple months later, Dave said, would you be interested in knowing my background and what I was interested in? And he asked me to co-write. So one of the first pieces I ever had published, can you imagine co-writing with your mentor? Mm -hmm. And that's really where it started. He entered, it was the reason I met Jessica Luther, who is now a colleague and one of my dearest friends is through Dave, because she was writing with, um, with, you know, his book, his book line. And, um, it kind of everything else sort of fell into place. Twitter was happening and I was constantly on Twitter um, and it just started connecting with people. And that's kind of what brought me to where I am now. And I kept doing my work. That's the most important thing. I kept doing my work. I kept fighting for stories. I kept getting writing pitches and getting rejected. I got like at one point, if you were to ask me in 2016, what I did, I would tell you that I write pitches and get rejected for a living. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what it's a tough, it's a tough gig. And I mean, it kept working, I kept working, met the woman. And in 2017, we started burn it all down and had no idea. And we've seen a lot of personal and professional growth in that time. But we didn't, we didn't at all think that I just thought like maybe our then partners or whoever would listen, and maybe my mom. <laughs> so, um, I, but it's, 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 yeah, it's become a, it's become much, much more different and I've had the opportunities and I feel very grateful to be, but I've stayed true to what I want to focus on. My focus has always been global. It's always been, I'm interested in Muslim women in sport and I have a global perspective on Muslim majority countries and communities and immigrant communities and stuff like that here. So I'm able to continue that because the amount of stuff that I've amassed, <laughs> the amount of information I have, I need to chronicle it. I need to put it somewhere. Otherwise we know those histories will get lost. And like, we are very appreciative of you and your colleagues and our colleagues that burn it down. Um, bringing light to issues that like we in the sports world tend to completely ignore. Um, and I say we like as an overarching sports world and, and culture that we engage with, like we, we tend to like continuously ignore a, a lot of these stories, but you, you mentioned these two terms like dialogue and unity. And like, I think now is a perfect time to like hash out what's wrong with those two ideas. And maybe we can get into a discussion of, of like, what's wrong with like the, the typical sort of rhetoric around like, Oh, let's continue dialogue and let's ensure unity. <laughs> yeah. I think that, Words are a very powerful thing. And I think that 
the way we use them. And, you know, I'm a bit of a Marshall McLuhan nerd. I studied Canadian media <laughs> history. Like the medium is the message. And let's look at it. And Jessica Luther said something years ago that always struck with me. She said it while we were actually together at Pacific University outside of Portland, Oregon. Jules Boykoff, Dr. Boykoff had invited us there and we both presented together and on different topics, but connected. And she said the per- the way that the whoever, oh, sorry, the person who writes the story is as important as the story itself. Mm. Like it's a huge factor. And when, and that actually got me thinking along the lines and eventually ended up becoming a TEDx talk for me because that's the thing that's key here. Using those words intentionally or having conversations about things, but, you know, sort of even red tape around what we say, gatekeepers of who can use what words in conversations. I'm very lucky to be a freelancer because I don't subscribe to those kind of rules. I'm not yeah. going to not say, I was using capitalized B and capitalized I for Indigenous and Black. Every time I wrote a draft and sent it to an editor, I would actively make sure. And then finally the yeah. copy editor would get in touch and be like, I see what's happening, but you have to know what our company policy is. And, you know, I do the mandatory joke of your company policy mm-hmm. sucks, but, um, <laughs> you know, like do things that feel good to me because as somebody who is a freelancer, I don't have to, I don't have to report to anyone but my own conscience. So that was enough. But, you know, at the same time, I'm learning and having a lot of people around me that were doing an incredible amount of teaching and like, and helping me. Like I've learned so much from Dr. Davis and Dr. Brenda Elsie, like Brennan and Amira have just really guided me. And one of the pieces of advice I give aspiring sports writers is get yourself some sports historians and sports sociologists, because Mm. that stuff is, you know, critical. And very early on in my career, I was supported so openly and wholeheartedly by a woman named Dr. Sirtaj Seglikoglu, who is at Cambridge University and did her PhD in Muslim women in sports, focusing particularly on Turkey. Um, and she's at Cambridge, and she ran a blog called Muslim Women in Sport, um, blogspot.ca. So I created content for her. So she's like, I'm really busy. I'm writing my PhD. Can you help? I'm like, yes. I'm trying to hone my writing. And we worked as a unit, and she gave me so much support. So I found, and she also taught me how and where not to use words in that way. And when you've got a cultural anthropologist giving you really smart lessons, and she's at Cambridge, like, you know what I mean? Like, she's pretty, it's pretty smart um, about how to use words and what their power is and what I can do in my position with a platform like this. It had an impact on me. And the idea of sports, and I, you know, hashed out my own ideas about how I felt sports was a connector, not a unifier, because unifier is something that people use to mask talking about ideas. If we look at some of the statements put out by NHL teams, I'll talk about unity. We're talking about something specific like anti-blackness and police brutality. Don't give me words like unity. I want you to understand that, you know, there's a movement that's saying black lives matter, that it's brutality, it's murder, it's violence, and it's unacceptable. I don't want we're all together one nation. Okay, is the sentence really we're one nation with hugely inappropriate and offensive systems of oppression? Like, fine, if you want to say that, but that doesn't look nice on a Instagram post, does it? So, yeah. you know, like words matter. And again, you know, I will defer to the teachers that I've had. And through this, <laughs> I can't say enough that I've been very grateful to collaborate with academics. 
and who have said to me that your writing makes work accessible, but I use their writing in my work, right? I cite them. I work with them. And that's something that I'm also really happy to see in this is people from different fields and something in sports media that I've seen over the last five years of these collaborations between people in academia and people who are sports writers and deferring to experts because context is so critical. And, you know, a segment that we have is only made better by Amira or Brenda giving us context around it. On that, that note, you bring up, um, like a number of issues. And we we've talked about some of these issues on this podcast, but like the issues with these organizations and these sports franchises, um, bringing out their like, um, statements on black lives matter and about the rebellion. Like, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on, on from, all of these like statements that you've seen around you, I'm sure you've seen them around you either on social media mm -hmm. or like elsewhere. Like, what are your thoughts on these like overarching statements from whether it be individual athletes or organizations or leagues as a whole? Um, I think that for me, I've, <laughs> I said this last week and I stand by the statement. It was kind of a joke because, you know, both of you know that I'm a bit tongue in cheek and I'm a bit <laughs> sarcastic sometimes. I did not have white cis hockey players on my who's woke bingo card at all. And so <laughs> I really feel like there's been some movement and some sincere effort there. The same as, like I said, sometimes I don't expect perfection from anyone. And I've learned as part of my own unlearning process to give people a space to have a journey of learning. And Amira specifically was very patient with me and was helping me get that. And that you have to give people a chance to grow. People were really on LeBron James's case when he didn't talk about Tamir Rice, who was like virtually in his backyard, not virtually, like actually in his backyard. But look at where LeBron is now. Look at what he's done for communities. Look at what he's done for black communities. Look at what he's done for impoverished communities. Look at what he's done for youth. It's, it's pretty astounding. So, you know, in that vein, yeah, there's some statements that I don't love, like the St. Louis Blues were terrible. The Rangers didn't even give one. I mean, and not just them. Like, if you look at the vacuous nature of Roger Goodell's statement, like, are you serious? You're going to come out here and pretend like the NFL cares when you legitimately just did not want to hire Colin Kaepernick? Are we going to do this dance? Um, NASCAR surprised me, I have to tell you really, really fascinated by Bubba Wallace and the whole movement of like banning Confederate flags. Like that's like 90% of their fan bases. And I don't know anything about NASCAR, but I should prep because I'm pretty sure we're talking about it this week. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that I really that have surprised me, but the conversations that are happening in some ways, the genuine way in which those conversations are evolving. And when I say that, I mean players individually. Hillary Knight, you know, co-captain of the U.S. Women's National Hockey Team, had a statement that was followed by links on where, like, she was giving links for bailout funds. Like, this is the kind of stuff I want to see. <laughs> like, I often joke with Brenda on the team that Brenda's far more radical than I am like far more. <laughs> and, you know, but she's just like, yeah, she's got work to do. And, you know, it's a way to be critical, but there's a place to start. And that was a great start. So there's some people that I have been, you know, warmed by. And like I said, the conversations that are occurring in media now and sports media, but I'm 
you know, Black Girl Hockey Club has done so much work about this for the last two years. And Renee Hess is someone I consider a friend. And, but I think there's lessons to be learned here is that we're not just going to reach out to our black friends or our black staff when we need them in, a, in like, you know, this type of heightened issue of race. That's not what it is. We're looking for sustainable ways to keep people in these spots. Um, if you asked me a year ago, I would just be happy being an overpaid columnist at a Canadian, you know, writing some drivel like the rest of the columnists in the country getting paid. But I don't want that. What I want is to be mm -hmm. a decision maker. I've changed my trajectory of what I want to do completely in the last six months. And particularly in the last month, like I've been, sorry, I'm feeling a bit emotional about this. I've been really, I'm seeing the need. I have a platform and I have a responsibility. And um, I want to be a decision maker. I want to get to a point where I get to make editorial decisions because that's where the process is flawed. It's one thing to have broadcasters that are BIPOC, but if you don't have people in the upper echelons in those boardrooms and, you know, people will say to me, there's no seat at the table. And I'm like, my, you know, statement back and sort of what my tagline was, was build your own fucking chair, but I need a table to sit at and I'll find one and I'll go to the biggest, best one. And I like, that's what I want to do now. And I think we need to encourage other people to do the same. And you know, I, I'm, I don't know if it'll be a successful <laughs> journey, yeah. but I'm going to try my damnedest and to, to get there because sports has a lot of work to do. And, you know, I'm not saying that it can't be done, but when I'm in an industry where 90% is, you know, white, able-bodied, cishet men, it gets stifling. It gets to be the same. And the same isn't going to cut it. So like, I, I'm incredibly grateful that like you have, you're, you're saying these things. I'm incredibly grateful for you sharing these things, but like, I, I'd like to ask you of how, how you have pivoted over the last like month. I'm, I'm super interested in like how you've pivoted or like, I hate that word pivoted, like I, how you've changed over the last month to like grapple with what we're seeing around us in your own work? Um, I think that, oh God, this is hard because it seemed the, the I'm, I'm sorry if, no, no, if I'm asking a personal question no, or, no, I, or anything that's existential or anything like that. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, a question that requires inflection and you're asking really smart and purposeful questions. And I just want to, like be sincere in my answer. Um, it's actually witnessing what I know to be the truths of people that they're sharing so bravely and boldly and passionately. And when you're watching a community literally protest for the right to live, yeah. it's really upsetting in many levels. And people with whom I work, people that are chosen family, like I know these sentiments. I, I've, you know, I've been blessed to have them in my life, but to see the work that they're doing and how tired they are and how actually ridiculously and fucking unfair it is. And it's like, we're waiting for this white awakening to happen. And you're just like, are you kidding me? Like, I don't have time for you to wake up. And so in, things need to shake up. I've also, you know, I've always felt that disruption is important always. I'm not concerned with looting. I don't think it's a problem. Like, to be honest, a few smashed windows are really not an issue. And especially when you look at the root of those problems and 
a lot of the time vandalism is caused by undercover cops or people from other you know sectors just trying to do purport violence um we know that protesting works we know it does we know mm -hmm. that it's effective and this whole idea of that's just been reiterated that i'm seeing again and again is that this idea that nonviolence is the best way and we're seeing words like peaceful protests and demonstrations i'm like you know what no i think the people in power only call on peaceful demonstrations because they don't want anything they don't want to rock the boat they don't want to sit in discomfort they don't want to realize what it is and you know people are like well dr martin luther king jr was peaceful he was still assassinated so mm. with malcolm x you know and yeah. it's it's don't give me that don't don't give me don't cite me that gandhi did this like first of all gandhi is so problematic so please don't bring gandhi into it yeah like super yeah. racist in history you don't be get to be selective on who you think your heroes are like i'm sorry don't do that and i mean that's stuff that i'm still learning and just the voices and like the actually witnessing the intergenerational trauma of black communities has been really heavy and it's important and but the one thing I'm heartened by is the youth. Like I've been so heartened by the youth and I always am. And at first it was about environmental issues, but secondly, it's this, like, you know, I have seen kids that are supporting their friends and being genuine about it, wanting to protest. Um, I'm no stranger to protests. I've been there a lot. And, you know, when my 15 year old had told me that, like, he hadn't been there, I was his age and I was demonstrating against the war in Srebrenica and, you know, what was happening, the atrocities in Bosnia Herzegovina when I was his age. And when he told me he'd never been to one and he really wanted to go, I saw him doing the effort. I saw him sharing links. I saw him sharing information. I saw him signing petitions. One of my kids only, like, all of them were doing it in their own way. And I thought, okay. And he says, Mom, I really want to go to a protest. And okay, and then he did work and found out that the protest wasn't sanctioned by like a legit Black Lives Matter organization. So he did the work again, and the priority was community care and safety and me telling him, check in on your friends. And at first he's like, well, that's weird. What am I gonna say? I'm like, you're gonna say, how are you? He's like, well, that's weird. Nobody says that. <laughs> like, just text your friends. So then, you know, do like, cause it's not something they're used to. and just find out if your friends are okay. That's all. And that's, that has made me more hopeful. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I don't do the work I do if I was cynical, like I have to be hopeful. Otherwise I would have, I would have quit this and opened a cat cafe a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, so I'll, I'll pick up the thread there. Um, so like there's, it's actually, I'm finding it almost more difficult than, than usual to figure out where to respond because there's so much in what you're saying. Um, it's so layered that, um, it's kind of um, giving me pause, frankly. Um, one thread, though, that you were um, you were kind of weaving for us was about the the complete seeming failure in some um, in some departments to appreciate what is actually at stake right now. Right, as you pointed out, that this is this is literally about um, life. Uh, and black life and the complete systematic disregard that the state has for that life. Um, mm -hmm. And the, you know, what is 
so galling then in the context of that fact is then the way that we see, for instance, private property. This is what you were talking about with looting. Private property mm -hmm. somehow rendered commensurate to human mm -hmm. life, or frankly, it's privileged over it. I mean, like that's, that's a joke to say that it's seen as commensurate because what is actually valued is private property. Um, and we see that reflected then in the sports industry, right? I mean, we were talking about this. I, I, one thing that stuck out to me is I, I think you're, you're making an important distinction between the fact that there are individual people who are doing a lot of real searching. You know, I'm not saying that all people are, but you're, you're pointing out like there are, you are noticing people who are doing real work and you're kind of mm -hmm. acknowledging that, right? And saying that is the work that needs to be done. So it's a, it's a kind of, it's a victory and it's in, inherently for some people to be doing that work. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully that builds moving forward. But then we also have kind of juxtaposed with that, the sort of institutions and organizations, right? And capital and the way that for me, like what I feel is um, in contradiction to that, the way in which they are absolutely appropriating so much, mm -hmm. right? Like with, with these mm -hmm. solidarity statements, that's what they are. Mm -hmm. and, and, and frankly, that was one thing that was really interesting to me about the NASCAR piece. And I also don't know very much about NASCAR. I, I want to be right there with you. NASCAR is not my wheelhouse. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, same here. Yeah, but like the thing about that, we both agree, like our, our very common sense understanding of NASCAR is that like if there was a sports league who viewed its market as like white supremacy, it would be NASCAR, I would assume. Um, it is fascinating that then they are feeling in this moment because this is the thing I, I don't i just cannot take it at face value that these are moral decisions being made by these organizations when i look at their history um mm -hmm. and the other kind of choices being made to me it is always market calculus that's going on there right like, <laughs> yeah. that's, it's it's nike i mean that's i feel the same way about nike nike figured out before all of these leagues right in a much more kind of complex moment that mm -hmm. actually colin kaepernick had value for them uh, mm -hmm. And Michael Jordan didn't see it the same way, historically. Mm -hmm. Michael Jordan, right? Mm -hmm. Republicans buy sneakers too, et cetera. Michael Jordan thought, yeah. no, that's not a wise choice. I want to keep every market available to me. But Nike realized that if we can rebrand this, you know, sweatshop industry, the like sweatshop company, right? Synonymous in our child youth as one of the most deeply unethical um, corporations, right? They were sweatshopping. Suddenly, they've rebranded themselves, not suddenly, like over time, they've rebranded themselves as this kind of woke corporation. Um, and so seeing sneakers burned in the street by white supremacists was a win for Nike. And so, you know, yeah. I'm just kind of, um, I'm kind of going on a tangent here. But like, what I feel is like the Nikefication then of all of these leagues. Nikefication. Right? <laughs> like, what we're seeing. Hawk, I mean, the, you, you pointed to the NHL. And the NHL is so infuriating to me because like, I think you're so right. It's, it's unbelievable. And, but it's also, it's unbelievable. That's part of this, mm -hmm. by the way, right? Like, how is it that all of these people that like literally journalists like you have been for like, years but like even within the last few months pointing to the fact that people were not willing to speak about racism in the nhl even though it was abundantly clear and in hockey culture broadly right not just mm -hmm. the nhl and in canada absolutely as much as the united states mm -hmm. and now suddenly we're seeing like this complete about face where people are <laughs> making these like incredible unlearning moments <laughs> It's hard to believe for me, like what we're seeing there. And it's especially hard to believe when it comes to the corporations themselves, right? And we saw this, like their, their social media puts out this video exalting 
a white players. Oh, God. Tyler Sagan using that him in the field. Yeah. yeah. It's terrible. After what they have done to racialize people in their league historically, <laughs> they still, yeah. not to me, like that's just, that's a lovely little piece of evidence that what we are seeing is the Nikeification there, right? Of the NHL, yeah. right? Because after yeah. all, Nike still had a white supremacist sneaker line come out last year until Colin yeah. Kaepernick got on the phone and said no. So we know for a fact they don't actually care about the ethics of that moment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't even know where I'm going with this, but one thing that's in my mind, <laughs> like, what, what the hell do we do? What is happening at NASCAR? How could they be making this? <laughs> because that doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I mean, I think this, this is, I love the word Nikeification. I think it's so important. And that actually circles back around to the work that I do in modest sports, wearing hijab in sports, um, was because people are like, well, look at Nike. I'm like, first of all, Nike is not a PR firm for Muslim women's liberation. It's a capitalist mm. company. They have a bottom yeah. line and they know there's a market for it and they're going to do it. And guess what? They have that product out because it makes them money. There's a lot of money in like Muslim majority countries to be able to spend on this and people buy it. So let's not convince ourselves that, you know, Nike is just doing this for the good of like, you know, empowering Muslim women. Like it's not, that's not the bottom line. That's not what they do just inherently. And we know this, we know this from like, if we've got to look at things from an intersectional perspective, they're like, you know, policies on motherhood and black motherhood in particular, they didn't support, you know, any of those track athletes. So if they were really being genuine to what they seem to preach, then they would, they would have acted differently. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And thank so you for the, that. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Like the, the, the Nikeification. Oh, pardon Nathan, he's exhausted because like we are all exhausted, right? Like capitalism is exhausting and fighting against it at the same time. I'm that person that cries in their montages. Like you put Serena Williams voice on anything and I'm like gone. And then there's pictures of Colin Kaepernick, but at the same time, I'm like, go get that white money, Colin, go get it. Cause you deserve like, do you know what I'm saying? Like he's yes. also, he knows that it's coming. And I, you know, a lot of people ask us and burn it all down. Is there, you know, stuff or if forget the team because i can only speak for myself like would you not work for somebody i would work with nike if they're giving me tons of money i would do it and then i would like give that money to <laughs> grassroots organizations yeah like it's a messy system and until and, and brenda's very clear about this brenda firmly believes that capitalism is literally the root of all evils in the world she's very like very passionate about this and i get it but the time in the moment we're still existing in that system so what do we do right? Like, how do we survive? And that also, you know, collides with sports. Sports is a terrible system. I love soccer. I love the sport. Mm. I love watching it. I love playing it. I love hearing it. I love smelling it. You know, that the freshly cut grass with a mix of skunk and weed that wafting in the, <laughs> in the summer air. Like, I love that the humidity, I miss it desperately. But I also absolutely abhor FIFA as an organization. They're a corrupt regime, in my opinion. They have not stood by any of the tenants they seem to espouse. They were still fining black players when, you know, Marcus Turam, Lillian Turam's son, you know, took a knee. There was rumors that he would be fined. And they, they were fining people for political statements. Then they turned around and said, oh, wait a minute, this is getting popular and traction. We're going to have to change this. And don't forget, USA Soccer changed its policy so Megan Rapino could not kneel in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. So now they're changing the policy because of what's happening. Yeah, now we have and to applaud them for that, right? Now we have to pat them on the back. Oh, well, we're not doing that. Friends. <laughs> yeah. We are not sure. doing that. And we will point out the hypocrisy there because you're right. This is all lined with hypocrisy, right? All of it. 
And that's where it, 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 it is messy. Absolutely. It's messy. It's terrible. And then we find pockets of ourselves. Like, how do we keep going? We keep having these conversations. You both, the work you do is tremendous. We have to document all these things. This is, this is mm-hmm. the important thing about sports writers that are, you know, either marginalized groups or on the fringes writing about this kind of stuff. It used to be, Dave once called me a radical journalist. I'm like, Dave, I'm a brown Muslim woman. I don't want radical anywhere near my name. So, he, you, know, <laughs> you know, I'm like, do we, and he laughed and he was just like, no problem. But I'm just like, we, these are the stories we need to tell. These are the, the, the points, the fact that we need to get embedded Otherwise, they'll be lost and that, you know, 50 years down the road, will Nike be remembered as a stalwart of, of liberty and freedom and quote unquote unity? Like, we don't want that. So we need to keep it real. And, you know, Nathan, I don't even know I have an answer to what you were saying. I don't. But just, you know, to keep thinking about it, as long as we keep these conversations going and we move in a direction that we feel like there's actionable change happening and holding these corporations to account is really important. 99 and admittedly 99% of this podcast has been focused on North American sport or, or sport on Turtle Island. And like we admittedly have not gone beyond that very much. And like, hopefully that will change even on this podcast, but I would absolutely love to hear about your work with fair so with with mm. football against racism in europe mm. um could you please like explain to our listeners how you've been involved with that and sort of what you've been doing with with fair because like one of my side interests um personally is right-wing nationalism and extremism in sport and i'm really interested to get your take on how right-wing nationalism and and how racism um, sort of intersects with sport globally. Like, and I'm also not suggesting here that like football or association football is the only sort of global sport that we have here, but I'm, I'm really interested to get your take on your work with fair. Um, Fair is, uh, I think for me is a really great organization that does a lot of the work and has the conversations that I wanted, that I've wanted to see happen for a long time. How did I, I don't even remember how I got connected with FAIR, probably definitely social media. And um, I met Piara Poir, who is the executive director of FAIR at a conference in um, Austin, Texas. And he and I were sat together at a table and it was it became a bit of a joke and it's a running joke. I consider him like a brother. And we were taken to an Indian restaurant and there was about 17 of us there. And it was the worst Indian food I've ever eaten. And he and I laughed about it constantly. And I mean, the only thing good that they served was naan because like you really got to be terrible to screw up naan but like everything else i looked at him i'm like i could make all of this for everybody for like a quarter of the price the next time we'll just you know get like an airbnb and i'll just cook for everybody and he was laughing and and, and so when he found out who i was and i found out who he was and the reason we met and he was invited is because Michelle Moore, who's also a sports activist based in the UK, had connected with Ben Carrington, a sports sociologist who's now in USC, and they organized this conference when Ben was still at, uh, in Austin. And so then Michelle, knowing who was the who's who in the UK, invited him over and he came. And he and I had been in contact. So what I did is they asked me to be part of a project called Inspire because my my work working using football to sort of help 
immigrant women and refugee women get, you know, sort of more comfortable in society and have a have a play and use football as a means to help with recovery and as a form of therapy, if you will. So whatever, you know, limited knowledge I had of that, I was happy to share with them. And uh, we put together like a toolkit and a book. And I went to Warsaw in Poland, 2018, uh, December. <laughs> and it was very cold. Um, we were very <laughs> white. And it was, <laughs> um, and, and I met people from all over the world and who had, who were part of FAIR and were doing, and FAIR, what it does is it monitors instances of either racial um, abuse or homophobia or sexism and misogyny in the stands and by clubs and it calls it out and it works closely with UEFA and FIFA and other, you know, domestic leagues in Europe specifically to, um, and under the umbrella of those groups and not specifically only Europe around the world. Um, you know, they work again, like monitoring right-wing ultras in Eastern Europe and they, so their office is not listed publicly because sometimes they get threats, right? Mm -hmm. And for the work they do, and it's incredibly brave and it's incredibly important to ensure that football stays a safe and open space. And um, so I, I, I love those, those folks. And then Brenda is actually working with them as well. She does a lot in terms of policy and particularly focusing on misogyny and sexism in Latin America and South America. So that's, you know, Brenda is a part of that group too. She and I have never worked directly on a project together for FAIR because, um, you know, my interest is a lot with, you know, doing stuff that's specific to either immigrant women or Muslim majority countries or Muslim women. And I was invited to France last year. And one of the things that's very close to my heart and one of the, not causes, but one of the campaigns that I will fight forever for is to draw attention to the hypocrisy in the Fédération du Football Français, which is the FFF, um, the, the domestic you know, governing body of, of uh, soccer in, in France. And they don't allow hijab on the pitch, even though that yeah. you know, ban was rescinded. And they invited me there to talk about it. So on the one hand, we're celebrating the glory of women's football and I'm going to matches and I'm having a great time eating baguettes all the time with Jess, like all the time everywhere. And at the same time, I'm criticizing the entire system because nobody knows about this. And this is not a story that's sexy. Nobody wants to talk about this. I want to yeah. talk about it. I've written about it and I will continue to. I work in conjunction on campaigns within France from with Muslim women and feminists in France to help get this and, and, and not white feminists in that quote unquote term, but women that are actually doing the work in a sectional feminists. Like Beatrice Berbeuse is, is, is a fantastic woman. Women's Sport is another organization, Women Win, that are helping. So there's a lot of work to be done. And, and you know, FAIR is, 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 is sometimes can be a huge part of it. You've kind of naturally brought me to a, a sort of question that we ask a lot of people on this podcast. And I'm sorry if I'm diverting attention away from the very real issues, but like, how do you as a sports fan, and again, this is a very common question like that even Nathan and I grapple with on this podcast is how do you as a sports fan and someone so invested in sport and all the good things about sport navigate this like line where you are at once a fan, but mm -hmm. also a, a like staunch critic mm -hmm. of sport and sporting culture. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great question. I let that consume me for a long time. 
And I remember saying, this has consumed my entire life. I feel like <laughs> over the past, like several years, I think the, the thing is, is that I wish I had been more critical in my thinking when I was younger. And the only thing that I can say is that I remember wanting Zidane, like Zizou to do more. I always wanted him to do more. I always wanted um, Zidane to be more political than he was. I always wanted that. I craved that. Um, as far as reconciling those two things, I mean, one of the most intelligent and astute things I've been taught from Amira and Brenda is to say, it's complicated. It's the most academic thing in the world to say, it's complicated. <laughs> and I'm speaking to two academics, and I know you know this. And it really is like to talk about the layers of what's happening. And if I remove myself from the space, because at one point I said to my kids, you know what kids, we're not watching the world cup anymore. It's not happening. 2018, we are not watching. And you know, what my children said, well, you can sit by yourself in the basement because we're going to watch it. <laughs> so how do I, how do I, how do I do that? Do I remove myself? Cause I'm not, there's a way to love it. And there's a way to be critical of it at the same time. And I'm happy understanding that and yeah it can feel like you're always at a crossroads but the reality is is that if we disengage from sport who's going to be who's going to be trying to make it better mm. who's going to be trying to you know make it grow and we do this because we love it right that's it that that is absolutely it and so i actually want to i want to zoom in on, on a fandom that i think the three of us <laughs> all share i think i could safely say this that is Toronto Raptors fandom. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Go Raptors. I think we all feel oh, that. Isn't Sa Saturday, <laughs> is, Saturday is the year anniversary of the Raptors championship. Is it really? Yes, I believe it is. Oh, my goodness. You're right. I, I've been getting uh, Google notifications from one year ago and right now, one year ago, I was in France. <laughs> I saw them win at 3 o'clock in the morning in Paris with a laptop, and I was – scream like muffling my screams because Jess died <laughs> me sleeping and she was a good sport tried to stay awake but she's like Shireen I love you but I cannot stay awake for this I you know and I was like no problem I need to watch this and they won and she was so sweet because I went to bed at around four in the morning I was on Twitter I was like it's four o'clock in the morning I need to get up in three hours like we have to work today <laughs> so <laughs> I need to try to you know and I was so excited and it, it's not where I thought I would be to witness it. And, you know, I had an opportunity to cover the championship, but it fell through, but it was fine because I ended up being in Paris anyway. But what a, what an absolute joy to be able to partake in that. And even though I was so far away, my kids were, you know, part of it was the excitement of that journey, like the semis when they beat the box yeah. and that buzzer beater, oh, like yeah. I oh, had yeah. 20 19 year olds in my house. It was my son's birthday. It was May the 12th. 2019 they were in my house when that shot went in and the whole house started shaking because we were jumping so much it was it's it's wonderful and i think that you know the people who combine also just getting back to the statements like just to jump back a bit and weaving yeah. in the raptors their statement was so intentional and it was so good they didn't mess around and i think that yeah. this we've seen this is an organization and you know i will be critical of mlsc but the raptors are very tuned in to their fan base yeah they're very yeah. tuned into the community. That's what I want to talk about here, exactly. Yeah. Because I want, to, I want to complicate it, as academics are want to do, right? This, this question of where the Raptors fit in in Toronto. Because we've talked on the show before with uh, Courtney Zito about multiculturalism, hockey in Canada specifically, right? And of course, uh -huh. racism, yep. right? And how, how yeah. multiculturalism being often a euphemism, frankly, for racism or race yeah. in Canada as well. 
Um, would you agree that basketball and the Raptors specifically, but it's, you know, it's not just the Raptors because what people probably don't realize who are outside of Toronto, but I think the three of us all are well aware of this, um, and Shireen, you especially, mm-hmm. Toronto has a very intense basketball culture. Um, it mm-hmm. is like, it is a basketball city in North America, although most Americans do not realize that. And it's not just about the Toronto Raptors. It's about the way in which basketball is part of culture in Toronto at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question is, do the Raptors fit differently in the context of Canadian identity and culture than hockey? What can we, what do we do with the place of sort of the Raptors and the Leafs, for instance, right? Cause I mean, like people associate Toronto with the Leafs from, probably from the mm-hmm. outside and certainly yeah. like the way in which the story that most of Toronto, like the story that elite Toronto tells of itself is like a Leaf story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm not convinced that's kind of the accurate story. I feel like, the Raptors just have a different vibe and there's, they have a sort of a pulse on what's, they have their hand up finger on the pulse of what's happening. And I mean, Evie Kwong and Sahar Fatima of uh, the Toronto Star did an incredible story last year on the different fan bases of the Toronto Raptors during the playoffs. And one of them was Hijabi Ballers. And I'm on the advisory board of Hijabi Ballers, which is a grassroots organization that just seeks to provide opportunities for young Muslim girls across Toronto to get involved in sport. And what happened as a result of that article was the front office of the Raptors was paying attention. They got in touch with hijabi ballers and they said, you know what, we'll get in contact with Nike, who they're already partnered with anyway, so it's really not that hard. It's like a phone call. But what they did was unprecedented. They created the first sports hijab with a certified team logo on it. So what do you think that did for Muslim girls that are fans of the Raptors, like they're literally saying they see us, they know who we are, they know we're part of their family. Like it was extraordinary. I cried. Of course I cried. I cried everything. And it was such a moment to hold that I I hadn't seen I hadn't seen it done from the WNBA, you know, and especially mm-hmm. after a fight to get hijab into basketball and allowed by FIBA, this move was unprecedented okay. and it mattered. And you Can know, I just I'm follow not... up on that screen? I'm so sorry to cut yeah. you. I just you no, really no, caught ahead. me sparking on something here, which is yeah, based on our earlier conversation. And I'm, I'm this is not like a, yeah. not a leading question; it's an actual question. Um, what do we do with the appropriative piece in in the point you're making? Given that like the Raptors are obviously aware, like we've seen Jurassic Park, which is like the external outside of the stadium mm-hmm. where fans congregate, mm-hmm. and we see like the uh, outrageously large numbers there. So like the market that is Raptors fandom is immense. That's very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of moves you're describing, like in a vacuum, right? If we were just imagining people putting together, like if you just grouped a, group, a bunch of people together and was like, what are some ethical moves we could make to make mm-hmm. uh, experience of sport more just, more fair, more mm-hmm. quote unquote diverse, but not in that appropriate way, like in a, like in a way that was accessible to more people than has been the model, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's great. Like everything you're describing is wonderful, but it's, it's implausible to me that the Raptors are, well, that's the question. To what extent are the Raptors thinking that? And this goes back to something you said earlier, like to what extent does that matter? That's part of it. How much does that even matter? Um, if we're talking about Jurassic Park as a model, like what I don't love is the, and, and sports media is culpable as part of this, is this sort of narrative that, oh, look, Toronto is, uh, 
and what happened was the result of the Raptors going into the playoffs was Canada adopted the Raptors generally because there's no other professional basketball team in this country. So you had people in Winnipeg saying, look at the diversity and look at the lack of difficulty we have. We're just one team, one nation. Oh, my God, stop with that. No. And so I know that during that time, Morgan Campbell, who's a fantastic writer, was at the start at that time, was writing about, no, don't use this facade of Jurassic Park to pretend like we don't have issues of systemic racism in this country. Don't do that. Because mm-hmm. that's part of the disingenuous nature of sports media and how they you know, like share and purport these ideas that are just simply not true. And I mean, that was one example of it. Like we can love basketball and still say, no, there's pretty severe racist systems. There's carding in the city. Like, and that's what Morgan pointed out that like, he was listing off, like, there have been deaths of, you know, black folks at the hands of the police in this city. Like, Desmond Cole has talked about this for a very long time. And we can't separate those things. We just can't. And, yeah, we love basketball, and it's nice to see everybody cheering for something happy. Like, we all wanted them to win. But it's not if there's this not. And, I mean, I even delved into a little bit further. President of the MLSC at one point was rumored to be promising to take the players to the state of Israel for a trip. Yeah, and I was yes. like, say what? Say what? I'm like, what? Like, no, we're no. And then, you know, I bring it back to, um, to Michael Bennett's book, things that make white people uncomfortable and how he really protested. He was like, I'm the he told when he was with the Seahawks, he's like, I'm not going, this isn't happening. And he was one of those players that didn't go on that trip and spoke up. And I was thinking about that. It didn't end up happening. And to be honest, I dug as much as I could and I couldn't find out anything about it. It didn't happen. But, um, you know, and then instead of that, I found out that Marc Gasol, because I'm always ready to talk about Marc Gasol, is on a raft with his brother Pau in the Mediterranean helping refugees that are crossing and, yeah. and, and that are, you know, dis- displaced persons. And that's incredible to me. And just the stuff that they do, if it's not just only Pascal Siakam, but like Serge Ibaka and what they talk about, they work with Seeds of Africa, development programs for doing basketball for men and women. And that stuff matters to me. That's the good stuff we can talk about. But I don't want, you know, to use basketball and the Raptors, you know, to sort of masquerade as Canadian unity or Mm -hmm. what have you. Like, and like, let's not forget in all of this, in all of this, we're talking about experiences of immigrants. We're talking about this and the systems of racism. This is all completely on stolen land. Like, where are any Indigenous voices? Like, where are Indigenous athletes? Are we paying any attention to the Indigenous games? Do we even know anything about the Indigenous games? Like, we're only focusing on those capitalistic money-making things where we're ignoring, blatantly ignoring other stuff. And, you know, and I think these are all things I think about. Do I still love the Raptors? Yes, absolutely. Would I love to see them reach out more with Indigenous communities? Absolutely. Absolutely. On that note, like I've, I, as a fan, I have like continuously felt a, a severe unease with like the appropriation of Northern culture, mm-hmm. like with, like in, in we, the North and like, I've seen it in branding from the Raptors where it's in the background is like indigenous culture or like images of indigenous culture kind of downloaded on like urban Toronto sort of landscape. I have felt 
severe unease as someone who is very committed to like decolonizing the like the academic institution and seeing that appropriated by organizations like MLSE. Yeah. And like, I'm not entirely sure if I have a, a, a question here, more of a rant. I don't know enough about it. Um, but now that you're talking about it, I'm going to dig into it, to be quite honest. Um, I will probably check with, first and foremost, Janice Forsythe to see if she has anything, um, because like she's somebody I go to. And Dr. Forsythe is like, she's somebody that I absolutely like turn to and stuff. She was actually at that same conference in Austin, <laughs> Texas, that I was a wow. part of and I met her there. So, you know, we sort of talked about it and, you know, I would check with her and, you know, just sort of see what are your thoughts on this. Like, I'm, I, I don't know enough about it. I'm not you know, I wouldn't be able to comment in, in a way that was fair or, or, or intelligent. Um, but one thing that does make me uncomfortable, if we're going to talk about like those kinds of things that arise, are also the use of Navbhatiya as an immigrant mm. and, and how, look, wow. it's all, and he's, he's made some really uncritical statements. Like, you know, there was this guy that was super racist with him in Milwaukee and he took him out for dinner. And now the narrative is, Oh, if you can just beat racism by inviting someone to a five-star dinner. Unity, and right? There's at, the unity piece. I was like, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Like yeah. what, what is, and like, that's something that Dr. Lou Moore says. He's like, this is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. And like, yeah. you know, <laughs> It's, I just think his, his tweets are so funny and because every day it's something like he uses that sentence as much as I use Bennett like Beckham Jeffs. And um, I, I just was like, remember seeing this and like this, this uh, media dude named Muhammad Dalila was also penning out. It's like one of those feel good. Let's try to make it, you know, uh, up good. Or what's that site that just, just puts out like uncritical feel good stories that are like super vacuous upworthy is and that what it is upworthy that's what it's called yeah. what was i saying up good oh my gosh <laughs> um, upward like I, I remember actually and this is a kind of a side note an anecdotal story i had got into a bit of a discussion and a debate with one of the editors from there uh, uh, the editors because they posted a story and i challenged them on them but in fairness they responded to me they didn't ignore me because there was this upworthy story and if we want to talk about being uncritical, this is an example of it. Um, one of the most solid pieces of journalistic work I've done was just for my own blog. It wasn't published, but it was a couple of years ago, 2015, I think. And there was a story circulating from Colorado. And there was a high school student named Sama, S-A-M-A-H. And this photo started going viral of her soccer team wearing hijab in solidarity with her. And I was like, oh, wow, feel good story. That's nice. Okay, what happened? What happened after? So apparently, according to the two students and the teacher that I spoke with and the coach, what ended up happening was it was just a very performative, all these women, young women, and they're teenagers, so I don't expect a whole lot from them, put on a scarf, for, took a photo, then took off the scarf and went to play and left her on the sideline. That's what happened. So I'm like, wait a minute, was there any movement towards advocating? I called the high school secondary high, like, you know, uh, high school secondary sports association of Colorado. And they told me I was the first inquiry on this entire case. And that photo was shared over a hundred thousand times on Twitter, but That's nobody incredible. had, nobody had the good sense to call and ask. And I said, I would like to make like an inquiry. And they were great. They spoke with me. They said, we're looking to change the policy as soon as possible, but it makes you think. And that has always stuck with me. 
that like the gray lines, it's not just black and white in terms of let's take a photo. And the people at Upworthy, I was like, this is what's happening. And this is my blog post. And they're like, yeah, we get it. But like, also you're nobody, right? And also, also <laughs> these are kids and you know, they're doing something good. I'm like, they're actually not doing anything. Like you need to understand that. Like if we're gonna take this and make it a teachable moment that we have to teach kids not to be performative. We've got to teach people to be effective and impactful yeah. like yeah. i'm not in interested in my kid putting on a black square i'm interested in my kid telling me mom can you donate like my eid money to a bailout fund mom can you know my kid teaching my kid this is what you do for community care this is how you share postings for protesters this is what you do this is what you take when you're protesting like just be smarter about it like that's not that shit's not gonna help solve anything you know what no, I mean? And actually, I, yeah, so much, I know what you mean so much that actually I think it's like a perfect metaphor for what could be going wrong right this very moment writ large, mm -hmm. right, in the world of sport. This kind of photo op moment that people feel upworthy about, but then like what's the after, right? And, and I mean, that, that's still unfolding. There is no answer to that question yet. I mean, I always, like I'm always coming with this fairly pessimistic bent on it. Um, kind of like Brenda, that like that that anti-capitalist approach that makes me just like queasy about everything and kind of wanting to see it as appropriation, but, but it's, it's happening right now. I mean, like I might've said, I'm not optimistic about where the protests are going a week and a half ago. And you know, like they burned down police stations and Minnesota is talking about actually, like Minneapolis is talking about actually um, dismantling mm -hmm. the police force in a meaningful way, not just mm -hmm. tokenistic language around reform. So, you know, who am I to say that what isn't, what is or is not possible like that that's that's mm -hmm. that's a fact and i think that you've pointed to all the ways in which we need to be thinking about that um but the, okay so the other thing i have from what you were saying is you were talking about the kid piece right like your your own child and what they would do mm -hmm. and and actually i wanted to come to that anyway because um you know what you do with your kids uh obviously is like the 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 you know, it says everything about the values you have, right? The choices, like you're forced to make like really important choices about your values in the world and like what you really think is important. And, and it's challenging with sport, right? For someone who loves sport and at the same time is critical of sport, right? This sort of thing we were talking about earlier. You have, an, there's an impulse, in, I think in most cases for people who love sport to, you know, get your children involved in sport because mm -hmm. this is a thing you love and you want to give them the experiences that were wonderful for you, things that you love, you want to share with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'll start by talking about myself because that's where this is coming from. You know, I'm a parent mm -hmm. with a very young child. Who, she's just four at this point. Um, mm -hmm. But I certainly feel considerable ambivalence to her involvement because of my mm -hmm. general concern about what I, what I always call, frankly, the antisocial elements of competition and the dehumanizing aspects of sacrifice and self-harm that are normalized by elite sport. And this is separate from everything else we've been talking about today, right? Which is, of course, like tremendously problematic. Mm -hmm. So you've said you have, you have four children, you said, right? I do, um, yeah. Okay, so I know that you've mentioned already that one of them is, uh, at least one of them, is involved in fairly elite sport volleyball. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel tensions or contradictions with that participation, given your own critiques of elite sport? And this isn't calling you out. This is like me just as a like fellow parent, almost wanting to talk through with you. How <laughs> yeah. do you reconcile this stuff? Because I feel it's challenging. Um, all of the problems that I know on like international federation level and, and, and association levels all happen in a micro way in the same way. There's so much bureaucracy. I stopped coaching my daughter 
specifically because I was not willing to deal with political bullshit at the club. And she was under 10 and I was her technical coach. And I was very grateful when the next year, the, you know, the director of the club was like, thank you so much for everything you've done. We have people that are now going to be doing this formally. So it doesn't need to be parent volunteers, which is also good, right? The professional people that you pain and, and I'm not pro parents being coaches of, 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 of athletes. I can't imagine why that might be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have, but that being, I've seen it, I am witnessing it being done well. Like one of my, my children has a, a, like a parent coach who's extraordinarily measured. And I've, and I think it's a personality thing and an experiential thing because they also played very high level volleyball. And, but I also see the way that the team goes together and it is absolutely not in a way that elevates their own children. Absolutely not. And I've seen that being done very rarely and it depends on the individual. In soccer, I just think it's not possible. I'm not saying uh, coaches aren't, volleyball coaches aren't impassioned because they are. Um, it's just, it's it's like a different, it's a, it's a different vibe, I guess you could say. And I, uh, soccer was a way for me to connect. When people ask me what the makeup of my kids is, like, like how many do you have? What are they? And how do they identify? I'm like, I have three boys and a footballer. That's what I tell people because, like, my mm-hmm, daughter's the only one that's a soccer player. And um, it's definitely completely connected us in so many ways as the two women in this, the house that play. The two, the women in the house are, are my daughter also plays basketball. Um, but, you know, uh, my boys all play basketball recreationally with friends are quite good. And then they converted to volleyball in, in terms of elite sport. It's also very expensive. And we have conversation about it. I mean, I think about my kids and think about they, the way they look at sports, like the conversations, even something as simple as talking critically about a basketball player. Well, did you know this? Like when they were talk about Derek Rose or Kobe Bryant or, you know, and their associations with, you know, and, and, and with very severe, brutal, sexualized violent crimes, what, you know, what was happening there and the conversations we would have about that and the way that they would feel. I mean, essentially you know, and they listen to me record. I was bugging my kids. I'm like, you guys don't listen to my podcast. They're like, we hear you every recording, every Monday I'm like, yeah, but I'm the least interesting and intelligent on the show. You need to hear everybody else. So, um, so they, they're just kind of laughing, but I, I think the thing is you do your thing and kids have this wonderful way of absorbing stuff and they absorb it and, you know, they make up their own minds, but at some point you have to trust them. I, you know, would love for my kids to be like super critical at the age of like 16, but it doesn't, everyone has their own journey. Like I was, you know, a very pro Jean Chrétien card carrying liberal of the young liberal party of Nova Scotia (laughs) at 16. So everybody has their journey. Trust me. um, I'm, you know, I need to trust them, but giving them exposure and having conversations with them about stuff. And I do carry some of my stress and angst from sport. I wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail about parenting and how my eldest was, I think, in grade nine or 10. And I had been working on a piece about a very difficult piece about sexualized violence and martial arts. And I had read so much information and in, in, in survivor testimony that it was really raw. So when my son called to say, can you pick me up? 
I should have said, I need 15 minutes to decompress, but I didn't do that. So when he got in the car, I started to interrogate him on whether he knew what consent was. And he was like, what is happening? And yeah, he's like, they talk about it at, at the school and on the team. And I was really interrogating him and he just finally blew up. He's like, you think you're treating me like I'm a rapist? Like he was, just, it just, the conversation did not go well. And I have to know as a parent what, you know, what my place is and when to have those conversations and also that to trust that they know because they've been, they've had access to, my children are privileged. They've had, they've had access to people with knowledge. You know, I try to take my kids to as many of my events so they can hear and witness the conversations. Um, that's important to me. Like, you know, I talk a lot, but um, listening is key. And, you know, why, you know, my son had, was very privileged to have an opportunity to work with Desmond Cole on something. My son is on a no-fly list. And um, Desmond actually went with some of the team that went to Parliament Day and he was doing some work for his book and at the time in some research. And, you know, my son got to talk to him and meet him and just listening to Desmond and listening to the work he was doing was very impactful. And it stays and listening to the stories of in our own community and the Muslim community about anti-blackness is really important. And they'll get it, hopefully. And that's my biggest worry. Like, I want my kids to have integrity. You know, that's what I worry about. Absolutely. Uh, the most. That's what, no. like, as a parent, you know that. And if the, the stuff, the sports stuff comes, it'll come. Um, mm. Did I think I'd be a volleyball mom with, like, who literally has pom-poms and cowbells? And <laughs> for for somebody with anxiety, volleyball is not a great sport for your kid to get into. It's like, <laughs> but he loves it. And I'm very lucky. It also depends on the environment. Like, my daughter has had a long career in, football, in soccer. And some of the time the team and the parents have been phenomenal and some of the time they've been terrible and it's been pressure and pushing and problematic and you don't know what to do. Right. Yeah. And, um, before she's, she's with a club in Oakville and before we came to this club, which we're very, I'm very grateful for that she can wrap up her junior career here is that she was ready to quit because just, it was terrible. You know, there was no chemistry and the coach was just odd and just not respecting. And it just was a terrible place and very like predominantly white. The coaches were white. And my daughter's first black coach was when she was 17 years old after playing hockey. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry. After playing soccer 14 years. Oh my goodness. Almost. Yes. And so it was predominantly white men. And am I aware of this? Of course I am. Um, so they're like, it's, it's not perfect, but I mean, my daughter's never had a black woman as a coach. And am I aware of that? She, like I was coached her, so she's had a racialized woman, but you know, I think about that a lot. I think about my, my boys and what they've had access to like volleyball. I mean, can you get whiter than volleyball mm -hmm. and yeah. well, yeah, hockey, but, um, there you go. Volleyball, exactly. But, but volleyball is pretty white too. And you know, my son was like, um, I want to play professionally in Poland. He told me this like yesterday. Oh I'm goodness, like, Poland. Wow. I was like, Poland. <laughs> like, oh, wow. I love pierogies, but like Poland. And he was, he was really sweet. He's like, yeah, that's really good. And I mean, essentially I will, what you do is you try to teach your kids, you give them the tools and you, 
you just you, you at some point let them go so yeah of course i love my kid to pieces I mean, my kids are the world to me i will go to poland if i have to and be loud and obnoxious on the sidelines and hope i'm not you know deported for some international disaster or incident in poland like i just hope that happens yeah. but uh you know i'm sports has brought my kids and me a lot of joy and i think it's fun that we're allowed to you know and had champs league been happening this year my kids know don't talk to mom on champs league days like figure your own food out when the champs league finals are happening or the semis and you know nba and, and like world women's world cup or world cup like i'm just don't talk to me if i'm watching <laughs> i'll nice. order a pizza like you know it's 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 fun i think they enjoy it that's right. and that, that, there's a, that's a great insight because what i'm hearing in part is um you can give your kids sport and you can give your kids the kind of political education and they don't always have to be served together, right? Because there's room for your kids also to work these things out for themselves. They are people too. And it's like, they're not just vessels that you transmit knowledge into and shape into some kind of being that you're hoping to produce, right? Obviously that's not actually how it works. And so by kind of giving mm -hmm. them access to all of it, you're allowing them to have the opportunity to be the kind of, like to develop as the kind of people that you're hoping for. Um, I think mm -hmm. that's really, I think that's yeah. powerful. Like all the, that listening thing, because you know what, when you're 15 or you're 16 or 17, you know, you might be a John Chrétien supporter, but like hearing this stuff at that age, it, it gets in there, right? It has an impact, even if it's later. It's years, you never know when it clicks, but like there's, it's priceless that they are having the opportunity to hear these kind of insights now that will stay with them. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And when I drive my kids, when I drive my kids around, it burn it all down is what we listen to. Cause the rule in the car is if you drive, you pick music right you know. so yeah. and so my 15 year old doesn't have a choice and so but a lot of the time he surprises me and he really he really listens and sometimes my kids make fun of me because we'll get into a conversation and i'll be like okay i'm sending you an article jessica wrote it i'm sending you an article Lindsay wrote it I'm sending you an article mira or brenda wrote it they're like once my my son said mama can i ask you a question and please don't send me an article and i was like <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing and like oh. one day when we were at that I, I told you earlier i was at that volleyball tournament that in in, in um Kingston and it just so happened there was a sports sociolo sociology conference and so my son was in the room with some of the brightest sports sociologists in the content continent and I'm like do you know where you are do you, and they all happen to be racialized women I'm like do you know where you are and so he was just listening and kind of laughing and for him to have exposure to that was really 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 great for me for him to see that was amazing and I like I hope he absorbed it and I hope he understood you know, but like I said, it's a journey. Yes. I, I can't wait until my daughter's old enough so I can send her links for articles. Um, that, oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to having that experience. Yeah, um, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. But okay, let's, let's, the last thing I want to bring up, um, because it's really, it's actually directly on this topic is the issue of, you know, we're talking about representation and the impact of um, how you're teaching kids through and about sport. And um, I got to bring up Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, so I think it's safe to say, that you are a pretty big fan of Bend It Like Beckham. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am also partial to the film. And actually, I have shown it uh, in many of my classes over the years. It's a delightful film, and it is representing something that we do not see in mainstream yeah. culture. That's, that's a fact. And so I'm, I'm not here to take aim at the film because, like, again, I've, I've shown it countless times, and I, I loved watching it from the very first time I watched it as a young person myself. Um, 
but I've also written um, a little bit critically about some of its representational moves. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, that although it critiques racism in the UK society, obviously, yeah. it also ultimately figures Jess's family as the ultimate barrier, I would say, that's my reading, to her mm-hmm. football aspiration. And mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of a metaphor for inclusion in English society, i.e. like if she can be included, if her family allows her to be, they're, they're preventing her from becoming like this multicultural citizen in a certain sense in the UK. So in that sense, like you, the, you, like the English society is to some extent opening up its arms to her mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. are the barrier that she literally has to kick around, right? They're the wall that she has to kick around at the end of the film. Um, I don't know. I just love to hear sort of what you make of that. If you, if you see that similarly, um, just, you know, just curious to talk that through. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I have never been super critical of the film because it's very close to my heart. I mean, obviously it's not perfect. I think that, I mean, there's so many things now 20 years later, because the film is 20 years old that I have, I, you know, take issue with particularly like the glorification of Martina Navratilova, who I've just recently had like a Twitter fight with about her transphobia. Yes. So I'm not like, that's, that's the only sore part that is really that that wound is very open for me. Yeah. But also like this depiction, there's some things that I don't think were delved into enough. And the only thing was like, you're right. It was the family that was depicted as a barrier when in fact it was the systems of racism that were the barrier right, exactly. and sexism, exactly, which is what your point was. And the, that only comes to light when Mr. Bromra says that he was a best bowler and nobody gave him a chance. Yes. And th- that wasn't explored enough. It was explored a little in the very closing scene we see him with Joe playing in the park and they're all suited up in cricket whites. And we, we get a sense that they, he gets to relive a bit of that, but he's missed out on a whole adult life of participating. Right. So, I mean, I think in some ways I feel like the movie is, is beautiful in some ways that it shows. I saw a part of myself in film that I'd never seen before in that, in that film. I never would have, I, I never saw myself ever in depicted in film in this way. Like that scene where Jess is on her way to the match and coming out of a sari, going into a kit. I've done that and the opposite. I've gone out of a kit, wet myself down with like baby wipes and gone to a, like a function or an event or an engagement or something that like, I just never saw myself in that fusion. I never saw South Asian culture coupled with football. And still it's not much different 20 years later. We don't see and to quote Mr. Bomber, we don't see our kids in the clubs. We don't see them. Um, my daughter, I think, is at her level the only uh, South Asian. And South Asian diaspora is big. Like, it's not a small place. But to be in that level, it's not there. Um, and we can have conversations about there's not enough discussion about fees. Because for kids, and my work on Muslim women in sport, particularly in racialized young girls from South Asian diaspora, like fees and equipment are a big barrier. They're a huge barrier. And that's, I mean, yes, it's a, it's a character heavy story, but it's, it's not explored in that way enough. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And um, I, 
but I'm also not looking to it to necessarily, I think it's a great starter for conversations. And I think there's so many ways in which the film, and you'll never get me to say anything really bad about it because you know I'm obsessed with this movie. I consider myself a scholar of the film. Yeah, so, that's why I had um, to ask you about it. Absolutely. <laughs> but, and one of the biggest joys of my professional life was interviewing Grindr Chadha for like an hour. And it was so wonderful because in that, it was like the special segment I did. And I remember texting the like you know my co-host and saying guys i have an opportunity is this okay because we run everything by each other we're a collaborative process they're like oh my god yes yes you can do whatever you want <laughs> it was an emphatic response i got and i remember i was actually at courtney cito's house when i got the email i was in kingston to do a panel on muslim women in sports and i was just like completely losing my mind because i was like this is the best thing that's ever happened to me and um it was wonderful. But when I, she walked in to see me, she stopped. She's like, you're Asian. She was completely shocked that I wasn't a white guy because she was told oh. that she was getting interviewed for a sports blog, a sports of podcast. Course, right. So yeah. her reaction, and she said to me, had I known you were, you know, Pakistani, I would have told you to bring me a barata or something. Like she was so chill, so chill. And the conversation was not what we either of us expected. I cried when I saw her because I just did. Because as you know, like I said, I tear up all the time. But it was really important. And she was just, she was tickled pink that I was not like, you know, some white bloke. So huh. so it was it was a, a quite an experience. But yeah, there's a lot of things that I think could have happened. Could have the storyline been a little bit different? Could a lot of people are calling for the, for jewels to, to, to come out <laughs> right. and for them to be a couple. And I was asked by the athletic, my, uh, a friend of mine at the athletic who was writing uh, during COVID time to write like funny pieces and stuff like that. And Nicole Auerbach said, would you be able to write a, an epilogue of Bennett like Beckham? What happens? Yeah. And I said, yes, I would. And my sort of end of that story is Jules ends up coming out and marrying one of her teammates. Uh, no, ends up marrying someone from the English national netball team because I did my homework and they're quite storied. And Jess ends up uh, uh, having a meeting, a French businessman, and ends up having a daughter named Mia with that person. And she goes back to do work and she becomes a lawyer and works in sport and equity. And, you know, one of her mentors becomes David... Uh, Beckham. So that was like my vision for what happened. Like I have the whole thing there. I've thought about this for hours and hours and hours, believe me, where would they be now? But the, the point of the film is it can be a starter for conversation. I, I don't believe it's the end all of the conversation, but it is definitely a conversation starter. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's great. And, and on that note, um, this has really been uh, such a delightful conversation. Thank you for joining us uh, and all the best in your future endeavors. Uh, we want to see you in high places in sport because frankly, <laughs> our society needs it. We all need it. Everyone will benefit. Um, so all the very best to you. Thank you so much. And thank you both for what you do and just sort of amplifying me and burn it all down and all these fantastic, you know, folks who who do this this work women non-binary whatever like who are these BIPOC voices like and thank you so much it's very it's very nice to have these spaces because it can get it can get quite lonely sometimes <laughs>
Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.